Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi everyone, welcome to Dad's History. In the aftermath of the Gulf War, groups within Saddam Hussein's Iraq, this is back in 1991, rose up to try and achieve independence or certainly self-determination from the Baghdad regime. Chief among those, the two most famous groups, were the Shia, the so-called Marsh Arabs of southern Iraq, and at the other end of the country, the Kurds in northern Iraq. Saddam Hussein's forces responded with lethal force, and there was soon a catastrophic refugee crisis in the mountains of northern Iraq. By April 1991, the rest of the world wanted something done, and the Americans, their allies, the European allies, responded. Operation Provide Comfort was the American name for the operation. Operation Haven was the UK initiative. Soldiers like Andy Salmon, who you'll hear from on this podcast, were sent into northern Iraq to allow the refugees to return home and protect them from Saddam Hussein's Ba'athist counterattacks. On this podcast, we talked to Andy Salmon about that experience. We'll talk to Nowroz Oromari, who was a Kurdish folk singer and former Peshmerga, former resistance fighter against Saddam Hussein's Iraqi forces. He was so good at singing he was so emotional. His voice was considered a weapon of war. Uh, and he ended up a wanted man in about three countries. Naros and Andy now work together on projects. And I had a chance to talk to both of them about those events 30 years ago and why they feel that working together to promote peace and international fraternity is an important thing to do. This podcast is broadcast for the first time today on the 6th of April 2021 because it was on the 6th of April 1991 that Iraq bowed to a UN Security Council resolution and announced that it would have a ceasefire in northern Iraq. It was a totally fascinating conversation with these two very different men who've been on very different life journeys and yet who are now bound with a similar passion. If you wish to listen to other podcasts, we've, we've done many on the 30th anniversary of the liberation of Kuwait and the Iraq war back in 1991. Your best bet is to go and do it on historyhit.tv. It's the place to listen to all these things. Historyhit.tv, no ads on there because you pay a very small subscription and you also get access to hundreds and hundreds of hours of documentaries on there as well. So please head over to historyhit.tv, join the revolution over there. It's the Netflix for history. But in the meantime, here's Andy Salmon and Nauroz Oromari. Gentlemen, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Tudor. Thanks, Dan. Good to see you. Very good to see you guys. Now, if I could start with you, where, where were you this time 30 years ago now? Where, where were you? I think I was in Damascus. I was planning to get out of Damascus illegally to Europe. And uh, my destination was to get to Sweden because I had many friends in Sweden, but I got trapped in London. 
that was during the time a fatwa was released against Salman Rushdie and the Heathrow airport was very tight securely. But a friend of mine helped me with my passport. And what about when the Allies began the liberation of Kuwait and the battle against Saddam Hussein 30 years ago? Did you think that might be an opportunity to return to your homeland? Did you think it might lead to an independent Kurdistan at that time? Well, uh, for us as Kurds, that was a golden opportunity because we've never seen Saddam Hussein so stupid to go to Kuwait. And we were praying to God not to get back because the Allies were saying to Saddam Hussein, get back. And he would say, no, no, no. He he thought maybe they are not serious. No, they are not going to attack him. I wanted to go back to Kurdistan, but at that time I didn't have the passport, the British passport. I didn't have the document, legal document to get back. So I had applied for asylum and waited and I got uh, my humanitarian right. And somehow I didn't apply uh, for full uh, state as a refugee for asylum because I thought anyway, I've, I've been given this four years. It's enough for me. My life is safe and secure. And you, on the other hand, were in Iraq 30 years ago. You were a Royal Marine. I'm not, I'm not belittling the Royal Marine's contribution, but, you know, Rupert Smith and his 1st Armoured Division kind of basically won most of the headlines dashing across the desert like that 30 years ago. Were you excited by this opportunity to get involved perhaps in a different way in the north of Iraq? Well, 30 years ago, on the night that the British Army, Rupert Smith and co, went over into Iraqi territory... We were still in Northern Ireland, finishing off uh, a six-month tour in South Amar. And my company was involved in a huge gunfight with 18 terrorists outside a little village called Silverbridge. We had to have an ammunition resupply in the field. So the big story was, well, on the night that the British Army invaded Iraq, there were more rounds fired in a little place called Silverbridge in an incident called Gulf 7-0. So... Um, We were watching this from afar, of course, not realising that a few weeks later, when we got mobilised, we started pouring into Zako in northern Iraq because of this Kurdish rebellion that had been put down very harshly by Saddam, with a a million and a half Kurds fleeing into the mountains of Iran and Turkey on the Iraqi borders. So John Major managed to uh, build up a coalition because the Americans actually weren't that interested at that time in going into the north. In fact, he persuaded a coalition of about 10 different nations uh, involving about 20,000 troops to effectively invade a portion of northern Iraq, secure a safe haven and provide humanitarian support. And that's exactly what happened when we went in. So we had no idea this was going to happen. I was sitting in a bar in Mallorca, sipping a beer, watching this biblical scene unfurl on the television in the bar of people, women and children, men stuck in the mountains in horrendous conditions, didn't really think much of it. I went back that night from the bar into the villa and lo and behold, the Spanish police had called and said, "Uh, you need to ring your CO. And then I flew back straight away and then we ended up in Zacco. So that's, that's how we got involved. Andy, knowing you, bootnecks, it was always going to end up with the Spanish police one way or another. <laughs> That's right. Naras, can, can I ask, what was going on, although you weren't in northern Iraq at the time, what happened when Saddam Hussein had his forces kicked out of Kuwait? There was a rebellion. There was a Kurdish uprising. Can you tell me about that and whether your friends, loved ones, colleagues were involved in that? Yeah, the Iraqi Kurds rebelled against Saddam Hussein, and of course the Arabs as well, the Shia, did the same thing in, in the south. And Saddam crushed the Shia in the south, 
in uh, north of Iraq, which we call it uh, South Kurdistan, uh, the Kurdish political uh, parties and the people together, they managed to get rid of Saddam Hussein's regime in, in the whole of Kurdistan, apart from the city Kirkuk. And after that, Saddam Hussein uh, attacked the Kurds. And uh, we were told that he used uh, a limit of chemical weapons, not like before, but in different places. Again, he used it. And there were some casualties uh, and some people were brought to London as well and to America. And because the Allies came to uh, to help us, and one of them was our brother, Andy. We are, I'm very proud of him. I mean, of course, in those days, Kurds were dying in, in thousands. Because uh, it was winter and children, women, particularly pregnant women and elderly people were dying uh, on the snow, uh, mud uh, with diseases. Diseases were spread, no food. Uh, they were getting food, you know, from um, helicopters, uh, all those stuff. And, and John Major, as, as Andy said, he tried to persuade, uh, you know, the West that we've got to do something with these millions. Because officially it was said 2 million Iraqi Kurds got stuck between Turkish border and Iranian border. But we think it's the double of that amount. Possibly 4 or 5 million people fled. Because people were thinking they're, they're going to be attacked again by chemical weapons, which Saddam Hussein did again, but in a limited way. And so when the Allies came again, the Kurds got you know a bit of confidence and one of the, my, my family was there, and uh, eventually when I talked to my mother, when she got back to Kurdistan from uh, the Turkish border, they were about to die, my father was about to die. My father was rescued by a Christian family. They thought because he was an old man and he got stuck into a mud and he couldn't move, and the, because uh, the clothes that he was wearing, it looked like the Christians because uh, we've got the same traditions. So they said, oh, this is an elderly Christian man. So... They went and uh, rescued him. So uh, when they got back and uh, the British forces were there, the Americans were, were there. Actually, the British forces were exactly where my, my parents were. And, and once I said to my mother, how do you like the British forces there? Do you like them? She said, yeah, yeah, we, we absolutely love them because they give chocolates to uh, children and they, sometimes they give us medicine. And I said, what don't you like about the British forces there? She said, only one thing. They go on top of the roof, you know, they take off their clothes and they have sunshine, which is not in our tradition. <laughs> um, so, Andy, were you, um, you doing some sunbathing there, were you? Well, I wasn't doing any sunbathing, so uh, I don't know how many Marines were on top of the building sunbathing. Well, we were uh, straight into Zacco. We started moving in there on the 20th of April. The American Mew, 24 Mew, were, were first and we were part of 4-5 Commandos, second in. Uh, three Commander Brigade were following on with uh, one amphibious combat group, a Dutch Royal Marine Battalion, um, Netherlands Marine Battalion, and then 40 Commando. And US Special Forces had already gone to the refugee camps, which were pretty horrendous. And there was a, a huge airlift, which lasted about 31 days, which was bigger than the Berlin airlift, to give you an idea of the scale of what was going on to save people's lives in the mountains. So there was this humanitarian effort. And then really, we were part of the southern thrust to clear this secure route and form the southern part of the safe haven between the uh, Turkish border and the Iranian border. So we just started to move east. And I was 
a company commander, but I was given this task of moving first to negotiate with Iraqis, find the Kurds, and then start to think how we were going to bring the United Nations in afterwards who were just coming in as well. Uh, so that was the start of our campaign, um, you know, in April. Were you fighting? Were there Iraqi forces to fight? Or were you, what was it, a, a sort of peacekeeping and humanitarian mission by the time you got there? Well, we had a security job to do, but there was a joint Iraqi and coalition agency formed. And so a lot of what we were doing was negotiated. So the first challenge was actually clearing and trying to negotiate Iraqi police and Ba'ath Party Muharabat as well from Zakka, which is where we started. There were about 500 uh, Iraqis still there, a bit reluctant to go. That was negotiated cleanly. And then gradually, as we moved eastward, really from Zakko to this wonderful cliff-top place called Al-Amadiyya, that was really negotiated. Uh, so there was no fighting. There was one small skirmish outside one of Saddam Hussein's Republican palaces between a, a small observation post and some Iraqis who came out and started shooting at it. But that was about it. And the rest was very, very careful by negotiation, uh, a little bit of deterrence with the, the assets that we had, for example, helicopter gunships, uh, attack helicopters from the US Marine Corps, uh, who made sure that when tanks started swiveling their turrets and guns in our direction, we were able to persuade them, actually, that's not a good idea. We don't want them to get into a firefight. So it was, it was very careful, very negotiated. Um, and that was one of the big successes, actually, to you know, have no fighting after what had happened in the war. If you're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit, we're talking about the military operation in Kurdistan 30 years ago this week. More after this. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes. 
and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Now, Ross, if it's not too painful, Andy mentioned there some of the elements of ethnic cleansing and genocide. You've experienced this directly. Your family have suffered. You've suffered. Are you prepared to share any of, of the stories about what life was like in Iraqi Kurdistan in your time while you were there? Yes, as a teenager, uh, one of our singers, his name is Tahsin he was like Elvis Presley for us. So uh, one day uh, at school, I was in Mosul City. Uh, he came to our school and he went to uh, all the schools. He was trying to find children's uh, voices, nice voices for his new two songs for TV. So he came to our class and he said, who can sing? And then everyone said, oh, Nauruz, Nauruz can sing. And he said, ask me to sing. And I sang one of the songs and he loved it. And he took me to the headmaster and he said, uh, I want to, to take this kid to the local radio. The radio was a portable radio was, was based on a, a big lorry. And it was like FM radio only for, for, the, for the city of Mosul. And my uh, teacher, one of our teachers played violin and Tahsin Taha himself played oud for me. And I sang on that portable radio, and uh, it was only for the city. And suddenly, I became popular. People were talking about, who is this kid? And he sang Tasinta's song, and Tasinta himself introduced him to the, uh, to the people. And I was so proud. Wow. Like, imagine, like, Elvis Presley is, 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 is going to present to you, you know, and you are just a kid. And I was popular for uh, at least four or five days in, in, in that uh, situation. And then uh, the producers, not producers, because in those days we didn't have uh, legal producers. We, people were recording illegally, you know, the cassettes, uh, the ordinary cassettes, and, and spread them among people. So they came to me and said, can you sing for us? And I said, yes. And uh, I sang for them, and they paid me a, a bit of money. And, and then within those records, I became more popular. Then when I became popular, by the encouragement of the people, because I was a Kurd, I wanted to sing for my nation, for, for Kurdistan. And I started singing politically, you know, for our nation. And, and then I was arrested. I was only a teenager. I was arrested, and it was my first time. Because it was my first time, and uh, I wasn't, you know, an adult to be, to be executed. So I had to sign a pledge saying, from now on, I'm not allowed to sing, even among my friends. And my father as well had to sign the same pledge. And uh, if I had broken that pledge, I should accept the execution of myself. And this is only they would allow me to go free because it was my first time. Life after that, for me, it was uh, unbearable. I couldn't uh, sing for my friends and people constantly were asking me to sing, but I was not allowed. And my parents were very worried because they had lost eight sons and one daughter, and I was left the only son for them, but still I had uh, two sisters. Now, Rost, t- tell me, how did you come to be a Kurdish resistance fighter? I joined the Kurdish revolution while I was about 17 and a half, and I uh, sang for the revolution, and my, my duty was to do, you know, to, to recruit people through emo- uh, emotion, to go to the villages and to sing, or to sing on the radio, and the radios were 
based on the caves because we, uh, you know, to protect themselves from the Warjet, Saddam Sen's Warjet in those days. In those days, Saddam Sen had one of the most powerful army in the area. And he had money, petrol, weapons. The West and the East were helping him. So we were active mainly uh, at night, in the evenings. During daytime, we would hide in the caves. And uh, when I was in Kurdistan, I was singing. And, and uh, sometimes we would get in a clash with some Iraqis and we had to just defend ourselves. Iraqi government had a very unmoral method. If you were a rebellion, then they would uh, arrest your family. And if your sister was not married, uh, she could be raped and your brother could be executed, your father could be executed. So I was trying to avoid that, you know, to get uh, out of the eyes of the spies. How did you escape Iraq? My parents originally are from southeast Turkey, and we, we hate to call it southeast because it's north of Kurdistan. But anyway, officially it's southeast. So my parents uh, escaped the genocide from Turkey. So I went to Turkey, and in Turkey it was in 1981. It was a military dictatorship. You know, the military was very powerful and arrested most of the opposition and crushed the Kurdish uh, opposition, and particularly the PKK party. But economically, Turkey was weak and the system was corrupted. So I was arrested because I was singing in Kurdish. It wasn't a prison, it was a cell for three months and 17 days. And for 24 days, I was tortured. And for 33 days, I didn't see the sun. My tribe paid money, bribed some of the officials in Turkey, and they managed to take me out of the prison. One of the guys who was in prison with me, we became friends. And he was in the coffee shop, and his name was Ubaidullah. And I said to him, Ubaidullah, can I talk to you privately? And he said, what's wrong with you? Of course. And I said to him, this is what's happened. Uh, last night, people got killed. So could you find a way for me? He said, yes, I, I can take you to my village. And from my village, there are some uh, smugglers. They are going to go to Iran. And if you are lucky, you just go and catch them, and you go with them. Most people in that town, because it was small, and, and we were only three, four people from Iraq side, most people, they knew about me. They knew this singer got arrested by the Turks and he's the nephew of the famous uh, Nevruz Agha, the, the head of the tribe. So they waited for me and they said, okay, are you the nephew of Nevruz Agha? I said, yes. And I said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go to Iran uh, by any chance. I can't get back to Turkey. I'll be extradited. He said, okay, come with us. And there was another Kurd from north of Kurdistan. His name was Jahid. He was uh, like a socialist uh, member from a political party, socialist party. The rest of the people were smugglers, and the smugglers don't have mercy. They know nothing about humanity. They just know about money and to survive, and they are like wolf on the snow. They know every corner of the area. We went on the snow, on the pasture, and it was heavily snowing, and it was at midnight, absolutely cold, and some of them went to uh, uh, nearby uh, villages, and uh, the rest of the smugglers wrapped themselves, each of them with two, three blankets and with a bit of plastic, and they start sleeping on the snow. And we were left, just me and Jahid. Jahid started, uh, you know, shouting at them and becoming angry with them and, and swearing at them, saying, hey, you are not human, you are not Kurds, we are fighting for you, and you left us you know, under the snow, and we're going to die. And because it was snowing horizontally, you couldn't see your friend in one meter. So um, what, what happened? One of them came and said, okay, I'll show you the secret here. These are the pastures. And in the pasture during summertime, 
people from the villages, they go to these pastures to feed their animals. When they get back, they keep their old plastic shoes in certain places in the snow in order to burn them as energy, you know. So he came and he had like a, a plastic shovel and he digged somewhere and then suddenly uh, he brought some plastic shoes and he gave us one blanket, lit the plastic shoes, you know, and, and uh, we had a bit of fire. And uh, But the problem is because they were plastic shoes, even three days after that, when I was coughing, I was coughing plastic, you know, black plastic. Then I went to Iran and from Iran, I went to Damascus. I sang, it was Nauru's time, I sang for Nauru's and I was arrested. Uh, in Damascus because uh, they said, you are an Iraqi and you are a Kurd and you are a guest here and you are a refugee. Why would you say four parts of Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, Syria, Turkey, and and Iran? Uh, Naros, thank you very much for sharing that story. By by my reckoning, I think you escaped from four of the world's most brutal regimes in the 1980s. That's that's truly extraordinary. Um, Coming to you, Andy, I guess listening to that, but more generally... It must be one of the operations of which you're proudest, I guess, going into northern Iraq to try and bring some some peace and stability in the 1990s following the war. Absolutely. I mean, it was a campaign. I mean, it was a huge adventure that happened uh, with no real prior warning. Um, So when we got there, we were just staggered about what we saw in terms of the uh, signs of genocide and ethnic cleansing villages blown up, uh, vineyards, tracks, re-entrance, uh, mine to prevent the Kurds from going back to their villages. So real total destruction, uh, like Dante's Inferno. And then the people who were suffering so much in the mountains, I mean, horrendous conditions. I- I've never actually seen anything like that in the whole of my life. Images of those refugee camps and the smell, you could smell the uh, detritus from the helicopters as you flew in. So when you look at a mission like that, the purpose, it just doesn't come much better. You're saving people's lives and our endeavor as a whole, whatever we were doing, whatever part of the force you were in, um, you know, we managed to save one and a half million people by getting them down into um, eventually a, a very secure and safe area. So it was a massive humanitarian, logistic and security job that was when I look back, one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done in my life. What is the nature of this collaboration? What, what's that? What, do, what do you hope to gain from working with Naros like this? We've been working uh, since 2016 um, on a project called Journey Through Conflict, which is all about fusing stories, music, art and culture and creating immersive experiences or performances that inspire journeys to a better life. And Navros... Uh, sings on one of our productions, which is about Iraq. Um, So that's banning three of my own campaigns in Iraq, Kurdistan, Baghdad, and then Basra, when I was the commander down there, closing down the campaign. So we put on this show and Navros sings in it. We use art uh, as a backdrop. We have an Islamic cleric who does a call to prayer and a dan at the beginning. And then we suffuse the whole of the performance with live piano improvisation from a film composer and jazz classic concert pianist called Tom Donald, who introduced me to Navros. So that's how we uh, started working with each other. And we just keep the journey through conference stuff just keeps going. We do other things as well, which, which uh, you know, Navros isn't always involved in. 
but for the Iraq stuff, he definitely is. Um, and we, we look forward to doing another production and a workshop as part of the Coventry City of Culture uh, at the beginning of next year. So we're still engaged in it, despite COVID. What do you want people, how do you want them to respond to this music that hopefully we'll be hearing at the end of this podcast? What, what do you want them to feel and do? What we want them to do, whoever's involved in either working with us to put on productions or performances or in any of our projects or people who are the audience or the people that we're trying to affect with what we're doing, we're trying to build an inspiring journey to a better life. So whatever the scenario, we want to create some impact, which then leads to something else happening. That's basically it. We're catalysts for inspiring journeys with whatever we're doing and whoever we're doing it with in whatever scenario. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on the podcast. Very much appreciated. Thank you for everything you're doing. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much. Now let's hear some of Navarro's music. That voice that got him in such trouble but brings so many people so much happiness. you enjoyed the podcast just before you go bit of a favor to ask i totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money makes sense but if you could just do me a favor it's for free go to itunes or wherever you get your podcast if you give it a five star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review purge yourself give it a glowing review i'd really appreciate that it's a tough world out there law of the jungle out there and uh I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.